We're wanting you to be able to use this to invite somebody to be your guest with us next Sunday as we move into chapter 6. But uh, if you got in here this morning, you didn't get a study sheet, why don't we just take a second to raise your hand. Our ushers will come and get one of those. We've got a lot of ground to, to cover if we're going to see the tribulation period begin next Sunday morning. So let's, uh, let's get these in our hands and let's get our Bible set up, our, our study sheet, and let's begin to move into chapter 5. In fact, last week we, we entered into chapter 5. And, uh, of course, the context in, in chapter 5, and let's just spend just a second to make sure that we, we're all on the same page here. The context in chapter 5 is the same context as chapter 4. It's just a continuation of what was taking place there. Now, if you'll go back, and you'll notice that in chapters 2 and 3 of this book of Revelation, what the Lord does for us is He breaks down the history of the church into seven periods, and those seven periods are represented in the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. The last of those periods, the Laodicean church period, is the period that we are presently living in. And I wish I had time for all of you guests to establish that, to help you to understand the absolute urgency of the time that it is right now on this planet as far as God is concerned. We are living in the last days of the last period of church history that's spelled out for us in chapters, uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, and all the way down to, to chapter 22. And you'll notice that that seventh period of church history ends in verse 22 of chapter 3. And in the very next verse, John says in chapter 4 and verse 1, after this. Okay, so after the church age has been fulfilled, after it has been completed, he goes on to describe the rapture of the church. And if you're newer to the Bible and newer to things around here, the rapture of the church is that event where God will bodily remove off of the face of this planet all of those who have entered into a personal relationship with Him through His Son. And that event is pictured for us in chapter 4 and verse 1 with heaven opening, there's the voice, there's the trumpet, and John, a picture of the church, being caught up and transported off of the earth into the third heaven. And what it is is the same exact sequence that we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where God details for us the sequence of, of the, the rapture. And then from that point in, in chapter 4, John goes on. And he, he's in heaven now. We, we've, he's experienced the rapture of the church. And, and he goes on from there to describe the sequence or the, the, uh, the scene in heaven. The, the sequence is in verse 1. And then he describes the scene and the sounds in heaven through the rest of the chapter. And he tells us, once he got there, all of the things that he saw and all of the things that he heard that were around the throne. And we saw that the throne was the theme of chapter 4. As in 11 verses of chapter 4, he mentions the throne 12 times. And I mean, if you, you were here... And if you can just begin to imagine in your mind, I mean, this is just an unbelievable thing that John is actually beholding. And we've talked so many times thus far about what John is experiencing in the book of Revelation it wasn't a dream or a vision, but he was actually experiencing an event that has not yet taken place. And again, our minds can't comprehend that. That's because we're dealing with truths and concepts that are, that are infinite because they're of God. But John is there, and I mean, you can just imagine... 
just how captivating all of this would have been, and especially for John, because we know what the New Testament teaches about the love that he had for the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's called in the, the New Testament the disciple whom Jesus loved. They had a very intimate relationship. And I'm telling you, at this point in chapter 4, with John in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his glorified and risen body, and all of the hosts of heaven worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and giving Him the glory that He deserved when He was down on the earth but didn't receive, I'm just telling you, John would have been in an absolute ecstasy at this point. But to really understand what's getting ready to happen here in chapter 5, you've got to understand exactly what it is that took place back in chapter 4 and verse 1 when the church of Jesus Christ was raptured. Now, now listen very carefully. The Bible teaches that the day that a person receives Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are redeemed. Redeemed is the word that the Bible uses. We were created to have fellowship with God, but because we chose sin, that fellowship was broken. What took place when we chose sin is we sold ourselves into the slavery of sin, and of, of Satan, and of self, self, and there was absolutely no way out. There was nothing that we could do about the fact that we were sinners and that we were in this dilemma of being separated from a holy God. And so what God did in the person of Jesus Christ is He became a man. And He came to this planet for the sole purpose of purchasing, purchasing us off of the slave block of sin on which Satan had caused us to be chained, and he purchased us by shedding his blood as he died on the cross for our sin. Now, that's what Jesus Christ did to come to redeem us. And the moment that we called upon his name, what took place is he did exactly what he said he would do. We came to the point in our life And if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, we keep talking about this relationship, that happens for you the same way that it happens for for all of us and for every person who, who ever comes to the Word of God to see what the Word of God has to say about this. We come to the point of understanding who Jesus Christ is, that He is God in human flesh. We come to the point of understanding what He did for us, that He came to this planet, lived a sinless life, died, was buried, and rose again the third day so that we might be redeemed. And what He does is He buys us back. But at that moment, the moment we call upon His name, what the Bible teaches takes place in us is our souls and our spirits are redeemed at that point. We become a new creature in Christ that is spiritually. But we at that day, when our souls and our spirits are redeemed, what begins to happen for us then is we await the completion of our redemption. And the Bible describes that for us in Romans chapter 8. It is the redemption of our body. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that in order for us to enter into heaven, that something has to happen to this body. What it says is this mortal must put on immortality. This, this corruptible human body must put on incorruption. And at the rapture of the church, that's exactly what happens. We experience the redemption of our body. We receive what the Bible calls a glorified body. And in chapter 4, in verse 1, 
That's what has happened. And John is caught up into heaven to see it as the entire church of Jesus Christ, represented in chapters 4 and 5 by the 24 elders. And here is the entire church of Jesus Christ, along with all of the hosts of heaven. And John is caught up and he beholds the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ as the church in glorified bodies lifts their voices along with the heavenly host. And, and there is beautiful worship of the Lord Jesus Christ there. And I mean, again, for John, this would have just absolutely been it. I mean, this would have been the moment of all moments. This is what he, he longed for. And just when it couldn't get any better, all of a sudden in chapter 5 and verse 1, something happens that changes the whole scene. And look at verse 1. John says, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And John says, And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And God pulls out in verse 1 what we're calling in the title of this message, His book of unfinished business. And we began last week looking at, at verse 1 at the sealed scroll. The sealed scroll. The, the book that John is referring to that he saw in the hand of uh, of the one on, on the throne, uh, a book in, in John's day is what we would refer to as a scroll. It wasn't, uh, you know, we're, we're holding a book. We, we call the Bible in our hands, and it's, you know, a hardback type thing and got pages that are kind of a loose leaf thing. That was not the book that he was describing. It's more of what uh, would be a, a scroll. And, and the question of all questions as you come to chapter 5 is, is what is this book? What is this scroll? And the dilemma... Is, is there because in chapter 5 it doesn't specifically tell us what this book is. It, it gives us some clues. Look at verse 1. It says that it is in the right hand of God. So we know this. It's of a supreme importance and, and based on the fact that the right hand of God in the Bible represents His power and His strength. We know this, that if anyone's going to get this book out of his hand, he'll have to have the strength and power of God. And of course, to have the strength and power of God, you've got to be God. Nobody else has that strength. Nobody else has th that, that power. And we learned in John's day that these seven seals are significant because living in the Roman Empire, there would have been only one document that was required by law to have seven seals, and that was a will or a testament. And the way that it took place in Roman history is the document would be prepared, and it required, this, this will, it required seven witnesses, and each of the seven witnesses would take their seal and put it on that scroll. And then in order for that, that scroll to ever be opened, it required that all seven witnesses or their legal representatives be present. And again, chapter 5 tells us about this scroll and tells us where it is and begins to give us some clues, but it doesn't actually give us its actual contents of what verse 1 says were, was written on both sides of the parchment. But what we did last week is we kept reading in the book of Revelation because if you keep reading in this book, 
it becomes obvious what this document is because in the following chapters, what it does is it shows us what begins to take place as those seven seals of that scroll begin to be opened. And what takes place as those seven seals are opened is the tribulation period. And that's what's being defined. As those seven seals are opened, something's happening on the earth. It's what we call the tribulation period. And when the seventh seal is opened, the Bible says, continuing on in Revelation, that it initiates the sounding of seven trumpets. And when that seventh trumpet sounds, something very significant takes place. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 tells us that at that point, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we went into detail on all of this last week. And if you take all of the pieces and put them together, what we saw last week is that the sealed scroll that John sees in the hand of the one on the throne in verse 1 is actually the title deed of the earth. It is the title deed of the earth. The Bible tells us in Psalm 24 and numerous other places that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's it's His. He is the one that holds the title. But in Genesis chapter 1, when God created the man from the, the dust of the earth, man was given dominion over the kingdoms of the earth. So it was like this. God held the original title deed. The earth is His. And He handed a copy, as it were, over to man and entrusted to him the kingdoms of the world. And we saw last week that when man sinned, not only did he die spiritually and have the need to be redeemed, but what took place when he sinned against God is he also handed over his copy of the title deed to the earth and the kingdoms of this earth, and that title deed was sold off into the possession of Satan. But we saw in Leviticus chapter 25 that God laid down a glorious principle in His law for the nation of Israel. God said, The land shall not be sold forever. What he did in Leviticus chapter 25, and it's also recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 25, is the provision of the kinsman redeemer, which stated that if someone owed a debt, now listen very carefully, if someone owed a debt that they couldn't pay, what the provision stated is that they could sell themselves off into slavery to pay the debt, or, or and or they could sell their land in payment of the debt. But God was wanting us to know there, as he established this principle in Leviticus chapter 25, that the land could not forever be sold. There was no permanent transfer of land. And what he said in that provision is that a blood relative, or a next of kin, if he came along and he had the ability to be able to pay off that debt, and he was willing to do so, he could pay the debt, and redeem the debtor out of his slavery and restore his property. Mm -hmm. Again, it's a beautiful principle that's laid out for the nation of Israel, and, and there's a lot of significance of why God laid down that principle, but above everything else, God laid down that principle because He wanted to show us something. He wanted to teach us something. And it was this fact, the fact that God 
did for us exactly what the kinsman redeemer in the nation of Israel would do. What God did is He became our blood relative. He became our next of kin. He became a partaker, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, of flesh and blood. He was doing that to become our kinsman redeemer. And He took that body of flesh and blood, He became our blood relative, and He was both willing and able as God in human flesh to redeem us out of the slavery of our sin. And again, now the day we got saved, our souls and our spirits were redeemed. And then at the rapture, as we see here in chapter 4, our bodies are going to be redeemed because of what the kinsman redeemer has done for us. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that's where chapter 4 ends. Then when chapter 5 begins, God pulls out on that throne, He pulls out that original title deed of the earth as if to say, there's still some unfinished business that needs to be dealt with. And that leads us to Roman numeral number 2 on your outline, the sorrowful search. And again, we went into detail on this last week. God wants us, He, he wants to make a point about this thing of the ownership of the title deed. He, he wants to make a point about this one who would be able to take that title deed and rule the world. And what takes place here, as we read, is the angel de- declares a, a search. And throughout all of heaven, and throughout all of the earth, and all of hell, throughout the entire universe, there is a, a call that comes for one, just one, who would be worthy of taking the title deed out of the right hand of God the Father on the throne and be worthy of ruling the world. And when we ended last week, we ended with John in tears because the angel cried out for this one who would be worthy. And nobody in heaven opened their mouth. Nobody in heaven raised their hand. Nobody... Nobody moved a muscle. And nobody on the earth did. And nobody in hell did. And there's absolute silence. And John says, I I wept much. In other words, God allowed this whole thing to, to just begin to crystallize in the minds of every person that would be in heaven. Is there anyone that is worthy of taking that title deed and ruling the earth? And again, it's absolute silence in heaven. Absolute stillness. Nobody, nobody is found worthy. And then all of a sudden in verse 5, the weeping stops. Because John's attention is directed by one of the elders to the standing Savior. And that's where we'll pick up this morning. Roman numeral 3 on your outline. The standing Savior. And look at verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him 
that sat upon the throne. Okay, now get the picture. Here, here's John, and he is he he's an emotional basket case at this point. I mean, he he's he's crying his eyes out. I mean, he he has gone from the absolute heights of joy in chapter four into the total depths of despair in chapter 5. And when all of a sudden one of the elders steps down from the seat upon which he was seated there in chapter 4, and he dries John's tears. And you know how he did it? He, he did it by pointing him to Christ. You know what? I'm telling you. I was in a big mess one day. And you know what? Somebody came along, and through this book, you know what they did? They pointed me to Christ. And you know what? I've had a lot of sorrow since then, but I'm just telling you, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world because I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And that's already, of course, happened for John. But here is this elder. And John, he is he's weeping uncontrollably. And he says, Weep not! Behold! And he points him to Christ with a threefold description of the this one who is qualified to open the scroll. First of all, the one qualified to open the scroll is the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah. John says in verse 5, one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And what this does is this title takes you back to Genesis chapter 49 and verse 9 where Jacob is giving his final blessing upon his sons before his death. And of course, his twelve sons are those that comprise the twelve tribes of Israel, and in giving this blessing, he refers to Judah as a lion. And in that very next verse in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, what it does is it prophesies that not only would Judah be the ruling tribe in Israel, but that the future ruler of the entire world would come specifically from the tribe of Judah, and thus would be the lion of the, the tribe of Judah. Okay? So the elder says, Oh, hey, now listen! John, don't cry because there's a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah that has prevailed. And I want you to know something. Just the mere mention of this, this lion. You, you can't even imagine what that would have generated in the, in the heart of John because you see, he knew that down on the earth, the reason that the Jews had rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah is he came to this planet and he was just too tame for them. They were looking for a lion. And they just couldn't, they, they couldn't handle the fact that they were under the bondage of the Roman Empire and they were looking through the Old Testament and they were seeing this ruling and reigning and they were looking for a lion to come and to devour the death grip that Rome held them in. And when Jesus came along all meek and, and lowly and gentle and kind, he was just, just too tame. And they rejected him. And now the elder says, Hey, John, look! The lion of the tribe of Judah! And oh, immediately there would have been an excitement in John. But not only that, secondly, the angel says that the one qualified to open the scroll is the root of David. And this takes you back to another famous prophecy in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 10, it prophesies the fact that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. He's from the tribe of Judah, but more specifically, from the family of David. And of course, Jesus, from his human standpoint, 
fulfilled exactly that. You see that in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 2. You see that in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 14, that he was specifically of the tribe of Judah and from the family of David. But notice again the way that the angel describes him. He says that he is the root of David. Now listen, that, that means that he was more than just in the family line of David. And I want you to turn over quickly to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 and verse 16. Our Lord says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. Now listen, I am the root and offspring of David. In other words, I'm not just a descendant of David. Now I am, humanly, I am David's offspring. My family line is traced through David, but he says I'm also David's root. In other words, I am David's originator. I'm David's creator. You see that? He's the offspring, but more than that, he's the root. And you see, that's what Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46, he wants to bring the Pharisees back to that very fact of how was it, he says, that in the Psalms, David referred to me as his Lord. Now, if I'm just in his family line, how is it that he was calling me Lord way back then? And he's trying to get them to see the fact that he is, in, that he is eternal God. He is the root of David. So, he's of the tribe of Judah and the family of David, but as God, he is the root of David. So the angel says that the one that is qualified to open the scroll is the Lion of Judah. He's the root of David. And thirdly, he is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. And here is John. He's crying uncontrollably. And he tells him, hey, stop weeping because the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the book and to, 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 to loose the seven seals thereof. And so, so John, all in one moment, he begins, he, he turns his head to look at this one. And, and rather than, than seeing a fearful and powerful lion, he looked up and he saw the, the glorious and wondrous Lamb of God. He's expecting to see a lion and he turns and he sees a lamb. He sees the risen and eternal Christ. And I mean, now just go figure this. The lion who is a lamb. I mean, could there be anything more opposite in all of the world? A, a lion who is a lamb. And of course, the lion refers to Christ as the conquering King who will rule the world. The Lamb refers to Christ as the atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. And you see, this is, this is what we were talking about just a minute ago. The Jews, they just couldn't come to grips with this, this very fact that this Lion would come to this earth as, as a Lamb. But, but do you see it? I mean, we can see it now. In order to be the lion, he first had to become the lamb. Do you see that? In order to have any citizens of the kingdom over which he would rule, he first had to pay for man's sin by becoming 
a lamb. And you see, that's why the Bible emphasizes this thing of the lamb. The lamb. The lamb. In fact, one of the most beautiful summaries of the Bible comes simply by, by tracing this theme of a lamb. Check it out. At the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapter 22 and verse 7, presents the question of the ages. As Isaac asked the question, remember what he asked? Where is the lamb? And the question remained unanswered all the way through the Old Testament. For 4,000 years, the question goes unanswered. But then the New Testament opens, and God answers the question through John the Baptist in John chapter 1 and verse 29, as John declares, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then as God brings the Bible to a close in the book of Revelation, He adds one final epitaph of the Lamb right here in chapter 5 and verse 12, as all of creation affirms, Worthy is the Lamb. Where is the Lamb? Behold the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. In fact, 28 times in the book of Revelation, it talks about the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. You know what? It only mentions the Lion once. And it's right here in verse 5. But 28 times, the Lamb. And you know what? You've you got you to gotta love the contrast in Revelation because how is Satan described in, in this book. You remember? He, he emerges in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3 as the great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And, and boy, I'm telling you what, if you're looking at this thing from the human perspective, the lamb doesn't stand a chance against a great red dragon. But buddy, make sure you don't look at it from the human perspective. Because God said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, that He hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world, and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and which are not, to bring to naught or nothing things that are. I mean, what could God do with a... A, a weak, base, despised, foolish little lamb. You know what he can do? He can confound a wise and mighty great red dragon. That's what he can do. But again, the point is, he is the lion and will come to, to this earth and he will rule and reign because of the very simple fact that he was willing to come to this earth the first time as a lamb. As A.W. Tozer said, our redemption wasn't by muscle, but by love. It wasn't wrought by vengeance, but by forgiveness. It wasn't by sword, but by sacrifice. We're Christians because Jesus destroyed His enemies by dying for them. He conquered death by letting death conquer Him, and then He turned death up inside out as He birthed burst forth from the tomb as victor. And watch John's description of the Lamb. In verse 6, here this one comes that is the Lamb, of course, the, again, the risen and eternal Christ. 
And notice, first of all, his position. His position. He is in the midst of the throne. He's in the midst of the throne. John says in verse 6, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb. And you know what's interesting? Now, now, now think. What's interesting about the fact that he looks and he sees him in the midst of the throne is that in chapter 4, do you remember? John has already given all the details of what was in the midst of the throne. I mean, he, he's already talked about the, the one on the throne and, and the four beasts that encircled him and the 24 elders that encircled the four beasts. And he talked about the emerald rainbow that encircled the 24 elders. Okay, so you seeing that? The one on the throne, the four beasts, the 24 elders, and all of this encircled by that unbelievable emerald rainbow. And I'm, I'm telling you, he's already detailed the whole thing. And you know what is strangely missing in chapter 4? The lamb. He looks. And here's the, the lamb in the, the midst of the throne. So where was he in chapter 4? You see, remember what the angel asked? He was asking, Who is worthy? And the Lord Jesus Christ had been seated on the throne with the Father in chapter 4. But in answer to the question, Jesus changes His posture. And when John looks after the question has been asked by the angel, the Lord Jesus Christ is no longer seated. He's what? He's standing. He takes center stage, as it were, and every eye in heaven watches and beholds this one as he stands. And you see what this does? It brings us back to the, the, you know, the whole purpose of, of this chapter and the whole purpose for the, the Father pulling out the title deed of the earth back in verse 1. Because you see, this is what we were talking about at the beginning. In relation to the completion of man's redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ is seated. It's a done deal. He's redeemed man's soul and, and spirit at salvation. He redeemed man's body at the rapture. And in that respect, He's seated. But in relation to the completion of the redemption of the earth and all of creation, He is standing in chapter 5 because the time has come for Him to complete the final work of redemption and assume the reins of power and government on the earth which has always been rightfully His. And John sees Him here in chapter 5 standing to complete that work. And you'll notice that when He stands in response to the angel's cry for one who is worthy to rule the world, when He stands, you'll notice that nobody questions His right to do so. But suppose they would have. Suppose he would have been asked the basis of his claim to take the title deed of the earth. How would he have answered? Well, the answer would have been threefold. First of all, he would have said that it was his by right of creation. By right of creation. Listen, the world, as we saw, it is his. If for no other reason, because of the fact that he made it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 says, For by him, that is Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven 
and that are in earth, all things were created by Him and for Him. Secondly, he would have said that it was that the world was His and His right to rule was His by right of Calvary. It's His because He redeemed it. He bought it with His own blood. And that's what 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 say. And thirdly, he would have said that it was His by right of conquest. The world is His, folks, because one day in the not-too-distant future, He is going to return to this earth and He is going to claim it in war. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about the return of Christ to this earth at His second coming when His feet shall stand, as Zechariah 14.3 says, on the Mount of Olives with His enemies under His feet. And verse 9 of Zechariah 14 says, And the Lord shall be King over all the earth. It's His by right of creation, by right of Calvary, and by right of conquest. So, He stands. And notice next, his propitiation. John says that the Lamb is slain. He is slain. And again, by becoming the sacrificial Lamb of God who was slain in, payments, in payment for man's sin, He is worthy to take the scroll and rule the earth. He, he redeemed it. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, "...not with silver..." and gold and the reason he didn't redeem it with silver and gold is because the commodity that it would take to redeem creation was far more valuable than all of the silver and the gold in the world what it required in order to redeem it was the precious blood of a lamb a lamb that was without spot or blemish the lamb of god and i want you to oh don't miss this I want you to see here that as John looks and beholds this Lamb, he sees this Lamb slain. Do you see this? Even in heaven, folks, even in His glorified state, even as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, John sees Him bearing the marks of having been slain. It's been said that the only thing that is man-made in heaven are the wounds that Jesus suffered on the cross. You remember that when Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to Thomas in John chapter 20. And what did He tell Thomas? He told him to look at the print of the nails in His hands and the spear in His side. He even told him to touch Him, to put your finger and put your hand in the wounds. In Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 5, a passage that deals with the second coming of Christ, it says, And one shall say unto him, that is Jesus, listen, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. And I want you to know something, folks. Millions and millions of years from now, even billions and trillions of years out there in eternity, long after all of our earthly cares and problems have been forgotten, do you realize that every single time that we pass the throne, we'll be reminded of the glorious price that was paid for our redemption as we behold the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ with the marks of sin as He paid our price for our sin. And we will behold those as a constant reminder for us through all eternity that we're there not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration. That washing was with His blood and the renewing of the Holy Ghost which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And all of eternity, He will still bear those marks that our sin placed on His body down here on this earth. And, and just as a, a footnote, notice, notice again the, the, the posture of this slain lamb. Things that are, are slain are lying lifeless and dead. But this slain lamb is what? He, he's standing. John says, He stood as a lamb as it had been Slain, And the point is our redemption was purchased not only through Christ's death and burial, but what? His resurrection the third day. He rose victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And then John gives us something else in his description of the Lamb. His power. He says that the Lamb has seven horns. Horns in the Bible symbolize power. And authority. We don't have time to work through the, the references. You, you see that in Deuteronomy 33.17 and 1 Kings 22.11 and Daniel 7, Zechariah 1.18. They symbolize power and authority. And of course, with seven of them, the number seven is the number of perfection and completion in the Bible. And so when you put that together, the seven horns represent the omnipotence of the slain lamb. The power of the Lamb represented in the horns is perfect. It's, it's full. It is complete. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18? All power is given unto me, where? In heaven and in earth. And you remember back in, in verse 1 where we were talking about the, the right hand of God being the hand of His strength and His power, and that if anyone would come to take this book out of His right hand and open it, He would have to possess the strength and power of Almighty God. And you see, here John says this one has seven horns. This one has all power. He is the omnipotent Lamb of God. And then next, John describes... His pervasiveness. He not only has seven horns, but he has seven eyes. Seven eyes, which he specifically says are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And we've gone into some detail on the seven spirits of God on several different occasions in this study. We won't take the time to do that again. But it cross-references you over to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse Two, where the seven ways the Spirit of God manifests Himself in the world are, are listed there in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And here, John sees Christ possessing the seven spirits of God. And they're represented in seven eyes in John chapter 3, verse 34. What it says is, says For God giveth not the Spirit by measure, unto Him, that is, to, to Christ. In other words, He possesses the fullness or the completeness 
of the Spirit. And that's affirmed in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 where Paul says, For in Him, that is Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you see, this, this answers the other dimension in verse 1. Because remember how we were talking about, according to Roman law, a will or a testament had to be sealed with the, the seven seals of the witnesses. And in order for the seven seals to be opened, the seven witnesses or their legal representatives had to be present. And God is letting us, us know that, that Christ possesses in Himself the sevenfold representation of the Spirit of God that qualifies Him to open the seven seals. Sevenfold representation of the Spirit of God is manifested in His person, again, by seven eyes. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 10 affirms the same truth, where Zechariah said, Run to and fro through the whole earth. And of course, putting it all together, the seven eyes represent His omnipresence. His omnipresence. Seven being the number of completion and perfection. And what you have here are seven eyes which are sent forth into all the earth and they see all things perfectly and completely. And putting this into the context, again, of the, the opening of the seven seals, what that means, folks, is during the tribulation period, when the Lion of Judah, who is the Lamb of God, when He meets out His judgment upon the earth, what this means is that He will judge as the perfect judge who sees all things and knows all things. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13 says that there is not any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. And I'll tell you, that's, that's a very important thing for you to see here and for God to lay down here because we are going to see as we work our way through chapters 6 through 18, we're going to see some unbelievable things going on in the tribulation which are going to make you want to ask the question, Oh my goodness, does God really know what He's doing? And He's nailing it for you right here that those seven eyes, they don't miss a thing. They go throughout the whole earth. He has all power, all uh, omnipresence, and, and omniscience. He sees all and He knows all things. And because of those things, the angel says in verse 5 that this Lamb of God who is the Lion of Judah and the Root of David because of who he is and because of what he's done he says in verse 5 he hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof and this is his prevalence his prevalence he has prevailed and what's interesting is that word prevailed in verse 5 it's the same word that was translated overcome eight times in chapters 2 and 3 it's translated overcome five other times in the book of Revelation. It's translated conquer twice in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. And in Revelation 15, 2, it's translated gotten the victory. And you see, because the Lord Jesus Christ overcame sin in His own life and through His death conquered the power of sin and death and hell 
and prevailed over the power of the devil, and because he got the victory through his resurrection. That's why verse 7 says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And listen, when you understand the first six verses of Revelation chapter 5, you understand what all is going on there. You understand that when he comes and he takes that book in verse 7, this is the most or one of the most climactic events in all of history. Certainly, the most climactic to that point in history. There's some things that are going to take place after that, but to that point in history, there's never been a moment like that moment when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and He takes that book out of the right hand of God the Father and He begins to open that thing. And we looked last week at some of the implications of what would have happened had the Lord Jesus Christ not prevailed to open that book but He does prevail. And He does come. And He does take that book. And as soon as He does, all of heaven burst forth proclaiming the salvation song. That's Roman numeral 4 on your outline. The sealed scroll led to the sorrowful search which revealed the standing Savior which prompted the salvation song. John says in verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song. And notice, first of all here, that he shows us the instruments of praise in heaven. The instruments of praise in heaven. First of all, verse 8 says of the 24 elders that every one of them had harps. Harps. And of course, if you're familiar at all with the the Old Testament, you know that harps were were the traditional instrument to which the psalms were sung. In 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 5, it says, And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps. Psalm 33 and verse 2 says, Praise the Lord with the harp. Psalm 43 and verse 4 says, Then will I go unto the altar of my God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise Thee, O God my God. Psalm 98 and verse 5 says, Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. Psalm 147 and verse 7 says, Sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God and folks in heaven, we will. You, you, we've never done. I doubt that there's anybody here that plays the harp, but I'm just telling you, as soon as you get to heaven, God's going to bless you with an incredible ability to praise His name upon the harp. You see, the praise of our mouth will be made more beautiful in the ears of the Lord as we minister praise to Him upon the harp. And then, secondly, That second instrument of our praise, he says that we have vials of incense. Vials of incense. Verse 8 says that every one of the 24 elders also have golden vials full of odors. And the word odor there is the word that is most often translated incense in the New Testament. So not only do we praise and and bless the Lord through the beauty of music in His ears, but a, a beautiful odor that comes up into his nostrils. And John lets us know what this 
this beautiful aroma of incense actually is. The end of verse 8 says, it is the prayers of the saints. And you see again, this is consistent with what you find in the Old Testament. David said in Psalm 141 in verse 2, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. And you remember in the Old Testament tabernacle and then, then later in the temple, right next to the veil in the center of the holy place, just outside the holy of holies where, where God would manifest His presence. Do you remember what was there? The altar of incense. And upon that altar, the high priest continually burned incense as it ascended to God and it symbolized the prayers of God's people. And so it is here. The prayers of the saints. And, and I want you to catch this, guys. Evidently, somehow, the prayers that we have prayed here on the earth are used in worshiping the Lamb in heaven after He's declared to be worthy to open the seals of the scroll. And are you catching that? Our prayers that we prayed on the earth are used as a part of our worship of the Lamb when He steps forth to open the seals of the scroll. And I looked at that thing and I'm saying, well, which prayers would those, those be? Because it doesn't say specifically. But, but again now, and this is the, that, the simple Bible principle of context. You've got to keep it in its context. And you see, if you put that into the context of what we're dealing with here in chapter 5, do you remember that the very first request that Jesus taught us to pray in the model prayer, do you remember what the first request of that model prayer was? It was the prayer that wouldn't be answered until the seven seals of the scroll were opened. You know what it is? It's what? That the kingdom would come and His will would be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. And you see, that was to be, that is to be, the longing and the prayer of our hearts down here on the earth. That's the overarching goal of prayer, folks, is that He would be glorified. That He would receive the glory that He is worthy of receiving on this earth. The glory that He was worthy of receiving when He came at His first coming, but would not receive until He comes to this earth at His second coming. And listen, all the way through the New Testament, all the way through this thing, we are told that as believers, we are to long for that day. And we are to look for that day. And we are to love that day. We are to hope for that day. We are to pray for that day. And here we find that God has been taking those prayers and storing them in golden vials that we will open in praise and worship when He steps forth to open the seals. And God says... Oh my goodness, that prayer, <laughs> that prayer is about to be answered. He is going to come and His will is going to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And it is a beautiful aroma in the nostrils of God. God's been taking those prayers and they haven't been answered. 
We've been praying it and praying it and praying it and praying it, and it's not answered. It's not answered. It's not answered. And God says, keep them coming. Y'all just keep doing it, man, because I'm storing this up. And one of these days, buddy, you are going to see that prayer answered, and you will open that vial. And it'll be the most incredible worship as you begin to put that aroma into the nostrils of God as you play upon that harp. Let me just ask you something. How many prayers have, have you sent up to be bottled? I'm not talking about the, the Lord get me out of this one prayers. Ah, he's answered so many of those. I'm not talking about the now I lay me down to sleep stuff. I mean where you genuinely prayed for what what he taught us to be praying for. How many prayers are, are sitting up in heaven right now in that golden vial that one of the, these days you're going to open? Do you long for his kingdom to come? Do you love his appearing? Are you looking for it? Or are you to the point where you're genuinely praying for it? You know what? The thing I'm loving about the book of Revelation is, you know, I mean, hey, all this stuff is going to happen whether we know it's going to happen or not. So what's the sense in learning about it, right? I mean, if it's going to happen, let's just go up there and do it. Forget about, you know, taking all this time to go through the study of it. You know what the study of it ought to do? It ought to put something deep down in our soul that's just anticipating and longing for Him to get the glory that He deserves. Is that the prayer of your heart? And let me ask you this. If, if the rapture took place today, based on how you have prayed to this point in your Christian life for His kingdom to come, for His will to be done on this earth as it, as it is in heaven, just how large a vial is God going to need to hand you on that day? And how long do you think, based on the prayers that you've prayed thus far, how long do you think that the fragrance is going to ascend into his nostrils? You know what? I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I figured this thing out, that, that this period of time where we open this thing, the, the fragrance grow, goes up into his nostrils for at least seven years, right? you got... You got seven years worth of fragrance stored up in your golden vial up in heaven because of the prayers that you've been praying for Him to get what He deserves? Or is your prayer prayers for what you think you deserve? You know, Lord, and do this for me, and this for me, and this for me. When Jesus says, listen, when you pray, pray to your Father which is in heaven. And hallow His name and worship Him. And make your first request for His kingdom to come for His will to be done on this earth as it is in heaven. So, the instruments of praise in heaven are harps and vials of incense. And then thirdly, our voices. Our voices. And John says at the beginning of verse 9 that on that day when He stands and He takes the book out of the right hand of the Father, that from our knees we will sing a new song. The middle of verse 8, it says, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, in verse 9, and they sung a new song. I mean, are you, just, are you getting a picture of that? 
when, when this whole event takes place and, and, and we're there and we're waiting for someone to, that is worthy to come and open it, He comes and He opens it. And as soon as He does, he, as soon as He takes that book into His hand, we fall down and with our harps and our golden vials, we begin to sing what He calls a new song. Oh, just, just imagine what this is for God now as we in glorified bodies begin to worship the Lord and the smell coming from the vial comes up into the nostrils of God on the throne and over the top of the beautiful music coming out of the harps of praise, we begin to lift our voices in song, in adoration and praise and worship and thanksgiving to Him that is worthy to open or to take the book and to open the seven seals thereof. And, and, and look again at verse 9. It, it says that it is a new song. Now why does it say that it's a, a new song? Do you realize that if you take your Bible and you just begin to look at what takes place in heaven, do you realize, folks, that this is the very first time since Lucifer fell from heaven, that the Bible actually records that there was singing in heaven? Before Lucifer's fall, Job 38 and verse 7 says that in the original creation of the earth, that would have been the one of Genesis 1.1, what it says in Job 38 and verse 7 is that the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. But after iniquity was found in Lucifer, from Genesis 1-2 to Revelation chapter 5, the singing stops. And not one place until here does it say anything about singing in heaven. But listen, as soon as the Lord Jesus Christ stands and He takes the book into His hands. A new song is sung in heaven by a new breed of the sons of God. Not like the morning stars of Job 38.7, but those of John chapter 1 and verse 12. Those who had become sons of God through redemption. Those on this planet who had received the Lord Jesus Christ and were thereby given the power to become the sons of God by believing on His name and what takes place in heaven as we begin to lift our voices as instruments of praise to the Lord. And it's a new song because there hasn't been a song sung for ages and ages and ages. God has just been waiting for this day to get His ransomed, redeemed church around His throne for that song to be sung. The song of salvation. And Notice next, the lyrics of praise in heaven. First of all, they tell us who is worthy. They tell us who is worthy. The song begins in verse 9 with, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And of course, thou is in reference to the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb of God, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
The lyrics tell us why He is worthy. First of all, because He was slain. Verse 9 says, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood. And you see, folks, that's what it would take in order to provide man's redemption. A slain lamb. It would take the blood of the Lamb. And this has to do with the method of redemption. You'll remember now, in Genesis chapter 3, remember after Adam and Eve sinned? You remember what they tried to do? They tried to cover their sinfulness that was revealed to them through their nakedness. They tried to cover it by sewing together fig leaves. And what it was, it was the religion of human works, of man doing something to maintain some type of standing before God. It was the religion of human works. But it says in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21 that God stepped in and it says this, listen, and the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed Adam and Eve. And notice that it wasn't coats of wool. See, if it was just a matter of covering it, God could have taken that lamb and He could have just sheared it and made coats of wool. But it wasn't coats of wool, was it? It was coats of skins. And God was letting us know right from the very beginning that man's redemption was dependent upon a slain lamb. In order to be clothed with the skin of a lamb, that lamb had to be what? It had to be slain. Its blood would have to be shed Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And now now listen real carefully. You see, what's sad, folks, is that there's a lot of people who are on this planet who are counting and banking on going to heaven, but they're trusting something other than the blood of Jesus Christ to get them there. And, And let me assure you something, that there is nobody... There is nobody in heaven singing about anything other than the blood that purchased their redemption. Nobody in heaven is going to be singing about water because nobody who trusted their baptism is going to be in heaven. Nobody in heaven is going to be singing about their church because nobody who trusted a church to get them to heaven is going to be there. Nobody in heaven will be singing about the seven sacraments because nobody who trusted the sacraments or any other human works will be there. The only ones who will be there are the ones who trusted the blood of Jesus Christ and His blood alone, and that will be what we sing about in heaven. I mean, can you just imagine somebody over here singing about water? Oh, praise the water! Uh-uh. We'd all we'd go slap them silly, man. We'd slap the... <laughs> Yeah, we'd slap them silly. That's what we would do. We'd slap them right out of heaven, in other words. Now the old song says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's why in heaven, that's the only thing that we sing about. Secondly, the lyrics tell us that He is worthy because He has redeemed us to God by His blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. 
And this has to do with the extent of redemption. Listen, there will be people there from every corner of the globe and from every people group on the earth. And I'll tell you what, that's exciting to me because, listen, at this moment, there are somewhere between 17 and 18,000 people groups who have never one time ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, there are still thousands and thousands of languages that don't even have one page of this book translated into their language, but somehow it is that God's redemption is inclusive of every kindred and every tongue and every people and every nation. And that's real comforting. But let me tell you something. I I don't know what would make us sing about that aspect of redemption there. Understand, we're talking about the lyrics of the song here. You know what? We're going to be singing about the fact, hey, y'all, ain't this great that He redeemed us out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation? And I don't know what would make us think that we are going to want to join that song in heaven if we weren't willing to involve ourselves in the activity of that aspect of redemption down here. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just kind of wild. People claiming they're going to go to heaven and don't give one flip about the world of people that are dying and going to hell that have never one time ever heard of the name Jesus Christ. I mean, what are believers that will be in heaven, what are they going to be thinking as as we're praising Him for for redeeming us out of every kindred and tongue and tribe and people and, and, and nation who in this life never even... I mean, never even made a financial sacrifice to see that those people have the opportunity to be here. Much less sacrificing their time. Much less sacrificing their life and going to to some people group on this planet who have never one time had the opportunity. I mean, and people who, like in this church, had the opportunity through the open doors that God was opening the door, had the opportunity to go to those people. I mean, wow, I'm just telling you. That's a freaky thing about heaven. We're going to be worshiping Him because of missions in heaven. And yet, believers in Jesus Christ on the earth, many of them don't even care about it. Then thirdly, the the lyrics tell us that He is worthy, verse 10, because He's made us unto our God kings and priests. and We shall reign on the earth. And this has to do with the result of redemption. And, And that is... This after the seven seals of the title deed of the earth have been opened, and this earth has, has been judged. Remember, we saw this earlier. Revelation eleven fifteen says, "The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." And of course, He does so as the King of Kings. He does so as the High Priest after the order of Melchizedek. But He who is so worthy takes us who were so unworthy. And what it says here in verse 10 is He makes us kings. And He makes us priests. And He allows us in that day to rule and reign with Him on the earth. And we, we sing about that very fact that He is worthy because He's made us kings and priests. So why is He worthy? Because of the method of redemption. He was slain and shed His blood because of the extent of redemption. He redeemed us out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And because of the result 
of redemption. He made us kings and priests, and we shall reign with him on the earth. And then finally, the lyrics tell us of what he is worthy. Of what he is worthy. Verse 11 says, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. I mean, can you imagine, folks, what this innumerable multitude must have looked like to John as he looked and he beheld the throne and he saw this, this, this host thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. And I mean, can you fathom what it must have sounded like as ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands all lift their voice to praise the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, all of heaven at this moment is filled with praise. And verse 12 says that they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb to receive. And you see the lyrics give us a sevenfold doxology of what our Lord is worthy of receiving. He says He's worthy of power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And Now something you need to understand here is that all seven of those things are things that our Lord already possesses. He has always possessed those. It's not like we give Him those things because, oh, bless His heart, He doesn't have them. No, they're intrinsically His. In other words, they're who He is. These are are just a part of His his makeup. The issue here is worthiness. All these things we are ascribing to Him that He is worthy of these things. And you see, it's got to be understood in contrast with the last time that He was on this earth. Because you see, He's worthy of praise, but the last time He was on this earth in John chapter 19 and verse 7 You know what we said? We said that He was worthy of death, not praise. But but He says here, first of all, that He's worthy of power. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24 says that Christ is the power of God. But you see, the last time He was on this earth, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24, man said that He did what He did and He worked. The power through which He worked was the power of Beelzebub or Satan. He is worthy of riches. You see, the, the last time He was on the earth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, For our sakes He became what? poor, that through His poverty we might be rich. And now we say, oh no, you are worthy of riches. You are worthy of power. Next, He's worthy of wisdom. 1 Corinthians 1.24 also calls Christ the wisdom of God. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 says that to the men of the earth, the preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness. But here we say, oh no, it's not foolish. You're the, the wisdom of God. We ascribe to Him what He is worthy of. Next, He's worthy of strength. We've already talked about this morning the seven horns of His omnipotence. But you see, the last time He was on this earth, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4 says that He was crucified 
in weakness. He's worthy also of honor. He's the one before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. But you see, the last time He was on this earth, in John chapter 8 and verse 49, He looked at men and He said, Ye do dishonor Me. But buddy in heaven, we say, Oh no, you're worthy of honor. Next, He's worthy of glory. John 1.14 says, We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and yet the last time that he was on this earth, Isaiah 53 and verse 4 says, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We said, that's what you deserve, but not here. We say, oh, you and you alone are worthy of glory. And then number seven, he is worthy of blessing. And you see, yet the last time he came to this earth, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says that Christ was made a curse for us. You see, He didn't receive what He was worthy of receiving when He came to this earth the, the first time. But He picks up the scroll. He picks up the book. And with one voice, all of heaven declares that He is worthy of all of these things that we refused to give Him when He came the first time. And then the doxology continues in the remaining verses as all of creation all of creation begins to lift their voices in praise to Him. And look at it with me. Chapter 5, verse 13, it says, And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts finally get to say, after all of this time of being around the throne, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And though it has always been full of His glory, the earth would not give Him the glory that He deserves. And now, finally, Finally, he gets that glory. And finally, the four beasts get to say, Amen! And the four and twenty elders, they just keep falling down. That's us, y'all. The four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Wow. What a day. What a day that is going to be. If you're here this morning, you don't have the assurance that you are going to be there on that day. Well, let me tell you, He is worthy of your life. 